God in heaven, we pray to you that you would grant us your Holy Spirit, that your precious word in this book would be open to us, and that it would lead us to stronger faith and more knowledge of you and of your great wonders and works that you have done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. So bless our study in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. New book. Now, the first thing is we got to look at the name Hebrews because you need to study that right off because it tells us something very important about God. God drinks coffee, He brews. There you are. All right. Hebrews is a very different, different book. It begins differently. You know, we have exclusively in here studied the letters of Paul. And they all start the same way, I, Paul. They are epistles. They are letters to either churches or individuals. But the book of Hebrews is very different. And it's been studied over and over again. And I want you to take a look right now at Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, the last chapter. And as we look at uh, verse 22, verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation or word of encouragement. Now that is used here, but that word encouragement is also used in the book of Acts. And what its basic meaning is, the word of encouragement is, that it's a word spoken to an assembled congregation. And it's usually read out loud. So through the years, scholars have studied Hebrews and over and over again have come to one conclusion. They believe that Hebrews is a sermon. Hebrews is a sermon. It is not a personal letter, a personal writing to a congregation or an a, uh, individual. It is a sermon that is written to an unknown congregation, all right? But it's more structured that way, and we look for these hints in the words that we read. Now, as soon as we think about it as a sermon, 
Then the next question is, who wrote it? And that is impossible to answer. We do not know who wrote Hebrews. And if anybody tells you they know, they're wrong. Okay? If you look in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, this is the only real hint. And the second part of the verse says, it was declared at first by the Lord, and then it was attested to us by those who heard. It was proclaimed first by the Lord, and those who heard were the apostles. This verse is telling us that whoever wrote this heard it from the apostles. They are not the apostles, not the twelve, but they heard it from the apostles. This is the only hint we have. Now, it is obvious from the way it's written that whoever the author is, he is very familiar with the people to whom he is writing. He knows them. And we would assume they know him well. We know that he knows them because he uses the term we. He includes himself with them. As we go through Hebrews, we will see the term we. We will also discover that the person who wrote this is very articulate and very eloquent. Wasn't written by a fisherman. Probably written by a scholar. I will tell you now, bud, you need to know this, the Greek in Hebrews is horrible. It's horrible to translate. Very difficult. And so sometimes I'll just stand up here and say, well, I'm using the English. But the fact is, that's one of the reasons they, that many cite that it's not written by Paul, because Paul did not write this way. Okay? He did not write this way. And it's a totally different style than, than the Apostle Paul. So we have no idea who wrote it. There's been all kinds of conjectures. Paul, Barnabas, Apollos, all kinds of conjectures. But after 2,000 years of study, nobody knows who wrote this book. So let's talk about the audience. As we read the whole book, we get the impression that they are converts. 
they are converts to Christ. Now the question becomes, are they Jewish converts or are they Gentile converts? Because of the extensive reference to the Jewish sacrificial system under Moses, many conclude they are Jewish converts to Christianity, that they came out of the Jewish tradition. Now, that doesn't mean it's exclusively Jews, but it certainly points that that was the majority of the audience. But there's something going on here. We talk, the book talks a lot about, especially in chapter 10, these people being persecuted. And we're going to look at a passage here in a few minutes. But it seems, if we had to try to piece it together, we are dealing with a a group of Jewish converts who have been under some persecution. And they are actually thinking about going back to their Jewish roots, leaving the faith in Christ and going back. Therefore, the author and his sermon is trying to convince them not to go back to their old ways, but to remain in the faith, to remain in the faith, because only in the faith do they see, receive the rewards that Christ has won for them. And by returning, they will lose the rewards. They will lose all that Christ has won for them. So the message is kind of don't give up in the face of uh, persecution. Don't give up. Now, that brings us to date. Um, in dating the New Testament, there's one question that is always asked. Was this written before the destruction of Jerusalem or after the destruction of Jerusalem? We know that Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. Jesus predicted it, told his disciples it was going to happen. And it's always been assumed that that prophecy was so important. If the destruction of Jerusalem had occurred, it would be mentioned. Jesus was right. Jesus' words were fulfilled. His prophecy was correct. We don't find that. But I want you to look at another passage, okay? I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 32 to 
to 35. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, okay, that would be coming to Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Now, the first thing this speaks to is what we talked about, the audience. This is obviously a group of people that came to Christ, were enlightened, and then they went through hardship, persecution, and struggle. But then he warns them, don't throw away your reward by going back, by abandoning the faith. But then... There's a little more we can say here when it comes to date. This kind of persecution occurred, uh, especially during a certain period. In 49 AD, the Emperor Claudius threw all the Jews out of Rome, okay? Threw all the Jews out of Rome. And there was persecution of the Jews within the Roman Empire. And then it got worse under Nero. Nero was 64 to 67. So what we're saying is between 49 and 64, there was persecution of Christians. This book could have been written during that time, okay? And that's about 15 years. We don't know for sure. One final thing on date. Look at chapter 8, verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Notice the second part, is becoming obsolete, it's not yet. And is growing old ready to vanish, not yet. We believe that this verse basically states the temple still standing. They're still offering sacrifices. It hasn't all been done away with yet. Now, when we put all that together, we don't know much, 
but we can say pretty conclusively this book was written before 70 A.D., before the destruction of Jerusalem. But we can't pinpoint, pinpoint a, an exact date. You know, we could get pretty close with Paul's missionary journeys because there were dates given, but there's no dates here. But it was before 70 A.D. Now, let's talk about the use of the Old Testament in Hebrews. Basically, the author of Hebrews is saying to us, the old sacrificial system is over in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So there are extensive references in Hebrews to the old sacrificial system and Moses. The prophetic words of the Old Testament find fulfillment in Jesus Christ. All right. In the book of Hebrews, there are 11 Old Testament books quoted, 11 different books, and there are 35 Old Testament quotes, okay? So it is peppered throughout with the Old Testament. And um, if you had to pick one verse that kind of summarizes it all, and this is not going to make any sense at all to you at this point, but it will later, it would be the verse uh, that is quoted on more than one occasion uh, from Psalm 110, um, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll get to it. But the basic emphasis is Jesus Christ is now the high priest. And as a high priest, he has carried out our salvation. Okay? Our salvation. All right, so that's the major things we can talk about. Um... As, as introduction to Hebrews, uh, to know something about the book. Because we don't know the author, it's a little bit more difficult. But uh, you will see how eloquent the author is as we go through. Again, it does not begin, I, somebody, wrote this to you. So let's look at verse 1. Now, it's not going to match what you've got because I'm using the Greek here. In many parts and many ways, God spoke from of old to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now the first thing you'll notice is that 
you know that line. In many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets, but in the last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And that quote is from evening prayer. The service of evening prayer in the hymnal, after we do the readings, there is that, that line. So, let's look at this. Through the ages, God spoke through the prophets in the past. But he didn't tell us everything. He didn't spill the whole thing. He gave us parts. And he did it at different times, in different settings, at various places, through different prophets. Not only just the prophets, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, but Moses, Samuel, he spoke his word through the prophets. They were his instrument to speak his word. And that went on for a long time. The first thing we can say, since that's the first line in this letter, the first thing we can say is, the author of this book wants you to know he's not speaking, God is. He is the instrument of God to say what he's going to say. God is the speaker here. God is the one. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The Son has become the speaker from God. The Son. Okay? And He speaks salvation. He speaks salvation. God is the speaker in all ages. But now he speaks to us through his son. Notice how God spoke to the fathers of old by the prophets. But notice, the, notice he says he has spoken to us. We are now included. He's spoken to us by his son. Now, what we have here in verses 1 through 4 is a confession based on the fact that the author is sharing with us who this son is to leave no doubt that this is not one of the prophets. This is the son. Okay? The Son. So, 
whom he appointed or he set as the inheritor of everything through whom he made either the ages or the world. Okay, so the first thing that's said about the Son, he inherits all things. You've heard the passage, all things are put under his feet. What we're basically dealing with here is the enthronement of Christ after he ascended into heaven. All things are put under his feet. Okay? So he inherits all things. They're all his. Through whom he made all ages or all the world. Reminds us of John. Okay? Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus was the mediator of creation. God worked through Christ to create the world. So the first thing he says about him is this son is not like a son of God, or sometimes angels are called sons, this is the Son who inherits all things and everything was created through Him. Next thing He says about Him, He is the radiance of glory. The radiance of glory. Radiance means here, we're, we're going to contrast this to the sun. When the sun hits an object, the object reflects the light. Okay? So, the Son of God reflects the radiance of the light of God. But... Christ no long, not only reflects the glory, he is the glory. He both is the glory and reflects the glory. In other words, he visibly manifests the invisible. He visibly manifests the invisible. to us. He shows us God. The radiance of God's glory is manifest verbally when the Son speaks. Okay? The glory of God is manifested verbally when Jesus speaks. Okay? Jesus speaks. And then he goes on. And he is the exact imprint of the substance or the nature of God. The term, the exact imprint, is one of the words that is only used once in the entire New Testament. 
There's a term for that, but you don't want to know it. But there are words within the New Testament that are only used once in the whole New Testament. This is one of those words. The exact imprint. It's getting at, you know, you know when they used to put wax on a letter to seal it and then they'd put their signet ring in it to mark it? The signet ring in the, in the, in the wax was an exact imprint. Okay. What's being said here is that the sun is the exact imprint. There's no English that really helps us here. The sun does not just resemble God. Remember what we confess in the Nicene Creed being of one substance with the Father. That was the debate in the early church. That was the big debate. Is Jesus God? The same substance in nature? Or is Jesus a created being who is like God? And that battle raged for years and years and years, and finally, when they wrote the Nicene Creed, they picked the term that said, same substance, probably insisted upon by Athanasius. Okay? He is not like God, he is God. He is the Son of God, the exact imprint, okay, the same substance as God, okay, it's a very important concept. All right, carrying all things to the power of his word, the word carrying means he sees to it. He makes sure it flows. This we would refer to as the providence of God. That he is intimately involved in our lives and in the world. And how does he see that it goes the way he has planned? By the power of his word. So there's all kinds of theories of the world. There's the old theists, you know. If you want to know a theist, Thomas Jefferson was one. And they believe that the world was a, like a clock, and God wound it up and just wet, lets it run and watches. He does not interfere in everyday life. He just lets it run. Well, we totally reject that. Because if he lets it run, what about him sending Jesus into the world to save the world? What about all the times that you and I know he has worked things in our lives? 
This passage affirms the providence of Christ that he is in control of the world and governs all things for the good of his church and the good of his people. Okay? He carries all things through the power of his word. Having made purification for sins. This is, of course, the reason he came. He is talking here of salvation. Salvation that he won for us, that he won for us on the cross. Okay? He made purification for our sins. You see several people leaving. The choir director has ordered them back because they are so unruly. So they're going back to get their robes on. Uh, now, so he made purification for their sins. Okay? Made purification. In other words, we're cleansed from sin. This was his primary work. Now notice the words have said, okay, the Son made everything, inherits all things, takes care of all things, is the perfect image of the Father, and he has made atonement for our sins. You see, it's a confession of faith of who this Son actually is who this son actually is. And then it says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in the heights, okay? In the heavens, in the heavenlies. When his work was done, he sat down. That's why we're talking here about his enthronement. He sat down at the right hand of God, was enthroned in majesty, okay, in majesty, in the heavenly places, the royal throne, the heavenly heights, he received this, okay? So it describes everything he has done, and then it describes what God did through him for us. Okay. And then it says, just to distinguish them, because he has become greater than the angels, which name he inherited, which is more excellent than theirs. Okay, he's now distinguishing the Son from the angelic beings. He is higher than they are. He is higher than they are. He is more excellent than they are because he's inherited a name that is far better than their name. Angels were angelic beings that were created by God. They are spiritual beings, 
but they are not the Son of God. They are not true God. They are not the perfect imprint of God, the Savior who providentially cares for the whole creation. Angels are not that, okay? The Son's high office separates him from humanity, but at the same time, he is now closer to humanity because he was human as well as God. He can give us better help than angels. He can give us better gifts than angels because he is God, because he is seated at the right hand of God. He can give us better. He's not just higher or different. He has a divine identity. He has the status of God's Son. Now, what is this more excellent name? Well, that's a good question. Many simply say it's Son. But as I said, we're called sons and daughters of God, and angels in places in the Old Testament are called sons. Some believe it's Lord. Uh, that is the more excellent name because Lord in the New Testament, its Old Testament correspondent is Yahweh, which was the unutterable name in Israel. They could not even call God that. We can argue about that all we want to, but the fact is he is just higher than everybody, okay? And this section is a beautiful confession, a beautiful confession of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. The author is clear now. The author is very, very clear. When I tell you what I'm going to tell you in this sermon, it is God and his son that are speaking to you. It is God and his son that are speaking to you, not me. Okay? In other words, he's telling them right up front, don't cast aside what I have to say because it's me. Here's who's speaking to you. God the Father who spoke to the prophets of old, through the prophets of old, and his son, his only son that saved you and is truly God. He is the one speaking to you. And then he has a couple of quotes that affirm that. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did he say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Well, he didn't say that to angels. He only said that to his son, the only begotten son. 
And this quote is all the way back from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. The Son is the eternal Son, begotten of the Father from all eternity. Okay? But he never said that to an angel. Never said that to an angel. And a second quote. And again, I will be to him as father, and he will be to me as a son. This quote is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. This is where Nathan the prophet comes to David and promises him that his descendants would be on the throne forever. And of course, the only reason they can be on the throne forever is the last son was the Messiah, the Son of God. So he is saying, he is, I will be to him as father and he will be to me as son. Speaking of what will happen in the future that he will be one of the descendants of David that will sit on the throne forever, forever. All right, we're gonna stop there, but it's time for questions, bud. Uh, do we know where the name letter to the Hebrews, which it doesn't talk about it in the text itself, do we know? No, we don't. We just don't know. Wish we did, but we don't. Yes, sir. Yes. Okay. The question is, in the debate over the Nicene Creed, was the word imprint used in that debate? I do not know. But there are enough places in the scripture that talk about this. The hypostasis, which is the substance, that's the Greek word. And it's repeated often enough that when Arius, that was his name, proposed that Jesus was a created being that who was not true God, but like God, then that's what prompted the debate and ultimately, based on Scripture, the decision, he is God. Okay? There's nothing here that says, like God. It affirms that he is God. He is God. Uh, not inferior to God. Um, that, that creates all kinds of problems when you start saying the Son is inferior to the Father, okay? Um, so we don't go there. But whether the exact word imprint was used, I don't know. I'm sure everything was used, okay? Yes, there, there certainly were other texts, yeah. Yes, sir. So even though we don't know exactly 
Okay. The question is, has Hebrews always been a part of the canon? When the canon was debated, uh, there were questions raised about Hebrew because they didn't know who the author was. But there's another point that was raised about Hebrews, and that is there are some things said in chapter 6 that are very difficult. We will get to those. That caused some to question, but ultimately it was readily accepted as part of the canon. It's been a part of the canon. Yeah. There wasn't a time it wasn't. It's always been a part of the canon. Other things. Yes? I might have missed it, but in verse 4, when it says, having begun, does that, wasn't he always greater than the Yeah, he was but, but again, this is speaking about the enthronement. When he ascended into heaven, that sealed the deal. Okay? Uh, he is now higher than everything. Okay? It's just a way of putting in, in some kind of historical perspective. Okay. It doesn't mean he wasn't that way from the start. He always was, but the enthronement, that seals the deal. Other questions? All right. We will continue with verse 6 next week. We'll probably get into parts of chapter 2. And we'll, uh, we'll move on. It's a very rich book. Uh, and at times very detailed. And I think you will enjoy it. Okay? So the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.